Sick with the slang, sick and I'm destined for fame. Do for the fam, not for the grand. Stuntly and destined for pain. I do not front, I do not scam. Put some respect on my name. Sick like a bang, click and I bang. Y'all gon' remember the name. Y'all gon' remember the name. It's not every day you get to talk to a visionary like Elon Musk. I'm lucky to be able to learn from him on the podcast and off air. When the cameras are off, people feel more comfortable sharing their personal strategies. Millionaires and billionaires invest in assets to counter inflation and crazy market swings. Elon himself has previously talked about the little-known power of physical assets, real, tangible investments that can hold their value during a crisis. But the real story, a group of everyday investors have already seen net returns of 10, 13, and even 32%. And they didn't need millions because they used Masterworks' art investing platform. So far, Masterworks has sold over $45 million worth of luxury art, handing the net proceeds right back to investors like us. Every Masterworks sale so far has delivered a return, and users have already invested over half a billion dollars with them. Offerings can sell out in minutes, but Zuby listeners can skip the waitlist by going to masterworks.com and entering the promo code Zuby, Z-U-B-Y, in the How Did You Hear About Us box. That's masterworks.com and use the promo code Zuby. See important disclosures at masterworks.com slash cd. What's up, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls around the world? I would like to welcome you back to the Real Talk with Zuby podcast. Today's episode, this is a glorious day. This is a magical episode. Mm-hmm. We have got on a legendary guest. Without further ado, the one and only Elon Musk. Welcome, welcome to the show, man. Thank you. So good to have you on. So good yeah. to meet you. Yeah. Likewise, good to meet you in person. I've interacted a lot, we've interacted a lot online. Uh, but it's nice to be in person. Absolutely. First things first, man. How how are you doing? Uh, pretty good. I mean, it's got a lot going on, obviously. Um, so uh, I just actually just got in from uh, Starbase, Texas, and where we're building the Starship rocket. So getting ready for another launch. Uh, hopefully, get to orbit this time. Uh, probably be ready in, in about so six to eight weeks. That's awesome. That's yeah. awesome. First question I have to ask, of course, is just. How do you manage this all, man? You do so many things and yeah. just managing a single one of the companies that you do is a gargantuan task. So how do you even manage all this on a day-to-day basis? I mean, with great difficulty. I mean, I work a lot um, and um, I have to say the last six months have been uh, extra difficult um, because of the Twitter workload. I, I think things are reasonably stable at Twitter at this point. Um, obviously, Linda Yacarino has joined and I think she'll be a big help. And, um, so I'll still be spending a fair bit of time at Twitter, but, um, it won't be uh, occupying as much time. Um, and, um, you know, now that, now that we're sort of financially more or less stable, uh, it's not like an emergency situation. Mm-hmm. Um, but we still want to rapidly improve the product, uh, especially on the video side. And, um, there's a lot, a lot of great things that are going to come out. Um, obviously payments down the road, um, Maybe later this year, um, and uh, improving the uh, direct message stuff, um, obviously enabling uh, full encryption um, and, and video and, and voice calls, uh, and just basically solving, like basically, we, we, if, if there's something you want to do, you can do it on this sort of, you know, X everything app, or you can leave easily and do it somewhere else. Mm-hmm. So you brought up X. X is something that you've been having yeah. in mind for a long, long time. time. T- tell me, tell me like the story. Years. Yeah, <laughs> tell me, tell me the story years. about X, X.com. Well, I mean, way back in the day, the idea was for 
uh, X or X.com to be um, an all-encompassing um, financial services company um, or, or th- thought kind of in like a um, infinite information theory way to be a to be the most efficient uh, database for the information that is money. Um, the, the way that money currently works is from a practical standpoint, it's um, still mostly run on mainframes. You know, that's, that's still a thing for, for banks. It's mostly written in COBOL. It's still mostly uh, batch processing. Uh, so actually the financial system is very slow. Um, it's not secure. You've got all these heterogeneous, uh, complex databases. Um, so if you have a real-time um, homogenous database uh, that is just like fundamentally more, more, more efficient and doesn't um, have all the expenses of uh, bank buildings all over the place and bank branches and, and ATMs, which are increasingly kind of redundant, um, it can operate way more efficiently. And so um, it, it, essentially, if, if, if done right, the X would be would, would serve people's financial needs to such a degree that over time it would become I don't know maybe half of the global financial system. Wow! Or some big number. Okay. Um, I'm not sure what the number is, but pretty big. Um, so it, it would be by far the biggest sort of financial institution. If, but, but like I said, not, not not really in the way that people are used to thinking about uh, banks. Mm-hmm. Just um, just the most efficient database for the thing that is money. Um, like I said, like, you know, least amount of fraud, uh, everything's real time. Um, and if it involves money in any way, it can be dealt with seamlessly on one, one lo- location. Um, and then in addition, you've got the sort of social media element, which is also information. It's uh, people sharing information of various kinds, whether it's text, video, pictures, um, voice uh, and um, and and so uh, yeah, so both money and and what we call social media are really information exchange um, and I think there's potential there to make a product that is really quite compelling that combines all these things simplifies people's lives um, is, is more you know cost efficient for the average person mm-hmm. so, you know you don't have a minimum number of fees and whatnot so, um, so I think there's this just a lot, of, a lot of potential to create some, like the kind of the ultimate uh, app or system, website, whatever. I hear that. And so would the long-term goal be for Twitter to evolve into yeah. X over time so it would just be fully integrated? Yeah, I mean, I said at the time of the acquisition, like it, I, I could do this independently and, and create it from scratch. Um, or... What I thought was um, acquiring Twitter would probably accelerate progress by three or four years, maybe mm-hmm. five years. I hear that. What was the biggest impetus to buying Twitter? What was the what was the thing that made you want to do that? Well, like I said, there there, there is a, a sort of um, you know for a long time I wanted to do sort of the uh, create X X core, mm-hmm. um, and so, so that's that was one element of it. I also thought that. I, I grew, was growing increasingly concerned that there was a lack of freedom of speech mm-hmm. and freedom of expression um, and that the, there was a lot of censorship and a lot of censorship was, some of it was obvious, a lot of it was hidden. Yep. Um, and I thought that's really, that was really unhelpful, un- unhealthy for public discourse. You know, so how, how are people, uh, say, in a, democracy, in a democracy supposed to 
make the right decision if they don't have the right information. Mm-hmm. You know, if they're being misled or important information is being withheld, which obviously was the case, you know, in the uh, infamous, uh, you know, Hunter Biden laptop situation. Everyone knows about that. But there, 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 are, there are thousands of other uh, smaller situations like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so effectively, Twitter and frankly, uh, Google and YouTube and um, whatnot, Facebook, they, they, I mean, they put their thumb on the scale of uh, elections worldwide. And they have done for some time. So, and a lot of times it's so subtle you don't even really notice it. Um, frankly, Google's might be the most pernicious in that uh, it's very easy for them to just slightly derank a mm-hmm. search. So it's on page like four or five if, if, for, if you're looking for something. And um, nobody ever goes there. So it's not gone. It's just not on page one. Yep. And... Um, you know, the, the old joke used to be that uh, what's the best place to hide a dead body would be the second place, second page of Google search results. Mm. And nobody would go there. Yeah. So, um, so, so I think for, in order to have a solid bedrock for democracy, and frankly, even if a country's not strictly speaking a democracy, it's still good for the people to know what's going on. Yeah. Um, we, we have to have at least one platform that you can count on. That is maximum truth seeking. And, um, and that's, uh, what the goal is here with, with X slash Twitter is um, maximum truth-seeking, um, really allowing voice, voices to be heard. I mean, unless someone's doing something like just flat-out illegal, yeah. um, then um, they should be allowed to say what they want to say. And uh, free speech is only relevant if, it's, if, if we allow people that you don't like to say things you don't like. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, it loses all meaning. Um, and at least in the U.S., like the, the First Amendment is, is pointless. Um, so, and, and if you don't let people you don't like say things that they don't like and you censor them, it's only a matter of time before that, censor, censor, that censorship is turned upon you. Yeah. You know, so that was the essential wisdom in the First Amendment. Um, and, um, and so you can kind of tell that it's working if you see people that you don't like saying you don't like. That's a good sign, actually. Yeah, yeah. You know? Uh, something I've noticed traveling all around the world and especially, I mean, recently I've been to all over the U.S., I've, of course, spent time in the U.K., I went to Australia recently, and it's, it seems like in all these countries, you know, the these Western nations that are supposed to be, you know, so-called liberal democracies, people are supposed to be able to speak freely and so on, the average person is terrified to speak their mind. It seems that the concept of freedom of speech has really been pushed to the side and marginalized. Yeah. It's not, it's something that is supposed to be a bedrock of our societies and nations and cultures, but something I found incredibly interesting, for example, when you bought Twitter was that people were not afraid that they would be censored, but they were afraid that their opposition, yeah. especially people more on the right side of I the mean, aisle, would not be censored. They were afraid yeah. of the freedom of speech aspect. So how, how did we get there? I mean, I think that people like like that should really look at themselves in the mirror and mm-hmm. say, like, what are you actually asking here? You know, you want censorship. You want things to be, you, you want information to be withheld from the public, even though it's fully legal. Mm-hmm. Um, you, effectively, what they're saying is they want the public to be misled and, and uninformed of, of all sides of the issue. That's obviously morally wrong. Yeah. Um, so, but, but you have the situation where basically all the social media companies are based in uh, the Bay Area, or I guess if you add Snap, it's LA, but the, the most influential ones are all in the Bay Area. So they have uh, a very sort of far left position, especially in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. I mean, 
doesn't get more far left than San Francisco Berkeley. <laughs> it's like, you know, yeah, I was, and, and, uh, and, I was I mean, exploring the city today and uh, yeah. I, I noticed that. I felt that. Yeah. I mean, you can see like there's some pretty rough parts of the city. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, people want to sometimes say, oh, you must be exaggerating. I'm like, you can just come to downtown SF on any random day. Yeah. It's the same thing. Um, and it's, uh, it's like Mad Max Walking Dead situation. Yeah, it's horrible. Yeah, it's like you can't believe it. Um, now, there, there are certainly um, still many uh, nice parts of San Francisco, mm-hmm. but the fact that the downtown core is basically a dead zone, uh, it's, and, and frankly, some of the areas where there's just no people at all, I think might be worse when the, where, than the parts where the zombies are because mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. it's actually bleaker. It's just, it's just empty. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we, we clearly don't want to have a world where that policy is amplified to earth. Um, you know, where, where, you know, we don't, we don't want all of earth to be like downtown SF. Mm-hmm. So you can see kind of like where the policies lead and the evidence is right here. So we, anyway, we, we it, it's one thing if that, um, if the sort of, uh, damage radius of an ideology is located, is limited geographically to, you know, sort of 10 mile radius or something like that. Um, which is what, what, you know, say a niche ideology would be limited geographically. Mm-hmm. But when you've got some massive global megaphone, um, it's a, effectively a mind virus megaphone to earth. If you have something like Twitter, um, Facebook, Instagram, you know, TikTok to some degree, um, maybe to a large, large degree. <laughs> um, I've heard a lot of people voicing increasing concerns about TikTok, not from the standpoint of, of spying, but, you know, having a negative effect on the youth. Yeah. So short, shorter attention spans and, I don't know. Um, how do you how do you manage that aspect when it comes to social media? Because I understand that anyone running a major social media corporation, there are so many different points of interest and conflicts and ethical confusion. I, th- I think a lot of people think it's sort of easier than it must be, right? You've got, number one, I think people often forget that these platforms are global. They're global, yeah. They're not just in the USA. They're not just in one nation. There are yeah. you know, 100 plus different countries, different jurisdictions with mm-hmm. different laws, different rules. There's political elements involved yeah. and so on. You've got the you know typical stuff that you're not going to want polluting any type of websites. There's various legal issues. But then also the goal of the platforms is to keep people on them. Um, yeah. In most cases is to sell advertising, is to make them sticky and addictive and keep people coming back. But in your mind, wh- where's the line on that between we can recognize some of the problems that social media is having, especially when it comes to younger people. Right. But at the same time, you do want people, of course, using the app and enjoying it and spending time on there. So in your mind, where do you think that balance is? Well, there is actually quite a lot of pressure from advertisers. Yeah. I mean, the, our advertising in, um, in, in North America and Europe is, uh, you know, down like 50%. Um, it's actually, you know, rough, still rough, roughly even in most Asia, actually. Um, interestingly enough, mm-hmm. but in, uh, in North America it's down like, I don't know, over 50%. Um, Europe's down about forty percent, um, and um, you know I think if if we if we simply towed the line and kept going as it was before, then um, we would still have a lot of that revenue. Um, 
so that like the, the actually uh, freedom of speech was pretty expensive. Yeah, uh, it really is uh, cost billions of dollars. It's, it's currently costing probably freedom of speech is currently costing about two billion dollars a year. Mm. So this is a lot <laughs> just on Twitter and and lost revenue. It's probably it's right right now roughly two billion dollars a year. Yeah. Um, now I think that could change over time. I'm hopeful it will. Um, that uh, over time we the advertisers will realize that actually Twitter is is not a some sort of uh, hate speech purveyor. In <laughs> fact, uh, I get more laughs from Twitter than anything else. Yeah. Like if you say like laughs per day, I mean it's more than everything else combined. From at least for me, um, I you know I sometimes see. I mean I see content I disagree with, but I don't find it to be sort of you know a festering sort of pile of hate, you know? Um, I, don't, I mean, what you, what's your experience? Uh, I, lo- I love Twitter. I mean, I've been, I've been using Twitter since 2009. Yeah, so you so know I've, well. I've, I mean, seen you can tell, a, I've seen it through yeah, a lot of different sure. iterations. And what what I did notice myself is that for the, for the first few years of using Twitter, no one really worried about being banned or silenced, yeah. censored, shadow banned, all of that. It wasn't yeah. really a thing. It really started to ramp up, I want to say around 2015, maybe due to the U.S., elections and you, okay. you started to feel the walls closing in, not just personally, but other people were found finding, oh, like, oh, that person got banned. Yeah. Oh, that person, that person, that person. It's, you know, it started out with people more on the fringes, but then yeah. it starts closing in and people start getting temporary. I mean, I got temporarily suspended for saying, okay, dude, once. Um, that was my one suspension. Really? Yeah. I said, okay, dude. Wow. In response to, in response to somebody. And, um, I, it's cool. I made a song and some good, great merchandise okay, out okay. of it in the end. But, um, yeah, I had to delete that tweet. It That's literally crazy. just said, okay, dude. That's um, <laughs> okay. So, so yeah, pe- people were getting banned for all these sort of things. And then now in the past year, it's, it's opened up again. Yeah. And I think people are having more fun now because they know, okay, I can make that edgy joke mm-hmm. or I can say this yeah. or I can say exactly. that. You don't without- need to be walking on eggshells. Exactly. So it's like walking eggshell is just t- definitely going to be a buzzkill. Yeah. So, yeah, it's, it's a, I mean, our general philosophy is to uh, hew close to the law in, in any given country. We can't do more than that. Yeah. Um, as you mentioned, uh, some countries, um, like most countries, maybe all countries, have um, more restrictions on speech than the U.S. Um, so we don't have any choice but to, uh, you know, obey the laws of, of any given country or they'll mm. simply cut Twitter off. Um so sometimes people are like well, are under laboring on the impression that, that we can mandate what speech is going to be in some other country. I'm like, we're, we're not the government, you know? Mm-hmm. So we'll do the best we can, but, but we can't go, if, if we just do illegal stuff, they'll arrest our employees, fine us, and then kick us out. Yeah. So it's, we'll do, do the best we can. Um, and I think we're, we're doing, I'm confident at this point, we, are, we, we do the least amount of censorship. Um, we're the most open. We're the only... A uh, social media company that open sources its uh, recommendation algorithm. Mm-hmm. Everyone else is still, you know, just a black box. You don't know what's going on in, in there. Um, and uh, and and then we're 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 making it better, better over time. So, you know, we're going to add um, indicators so you can see on your profile page: Have you been search banned? Have you been okay. visibility filtered? Um, is there is there anything that's that's affecting your account uh, in a negative way? Um, so. Um, like we're, we're going for maximum transparency. Uh, so, uh, and I think that's what really builds trust, mm. you know, because it's one thing to say like, oh yeah, trust us, but, but why? Well, if you can see everything we're doing, you know, then, then you, you don't need to believe me. You can just literally look at the algorithm. You can just literally 
you know, everything's, you know, completely above board. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it should be possible for actually, uh, independent third party to, um, recreate the recommendations that they see on Twitter mm-hmm. using our algorithm. Um, and, and frankly, we, we're, we're still finding different layers of code that we didn't know existed. We <laughs> literally found one, um, this week, okay. uh, which was, um, uh, which, uh, it had like a reputation score for any given account. And if that account started trending, uh, it would be deleted from the trending list. Oh. Um, and, uh, I mean, I was, turned out I was one of those accounts. Um, so the system would, um, exclude me from any trends. That's interesting. Um, so, and, and it was, it was just, it was simply based on how many, um, times an account had been reported. Okay. But, but, but not, not like dividing by total follower account or anything. So, you know, if, if like point. Oh, so if you just had a big following then. Yeah. If yeah. anyone with big following is basically getting, so, uh, okay. getting trend banned, which is crazy. Yeah. Um, or anyone that says anything remotely controversial or is targeted by, you know, bots or activists. Or, yeah. yeah. It's basically, it's very easy to sort of report spam, um, an account, um, kind of DDoS an account with, 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 uh, with fake reports. And then the system would just say, Oh, this account's gotten lots of reports. So they, they can't be in, in trends. Yeah. Were you expecting such a level of, I mean, of course you've got massive public support and praise as well. And I know you've been dealing with this, your, you know, criticism, your whole career, Sure. but, um, were you expecting, I mean, I guess number one is what, what level of backlash or criticism have you received? I mean, I, I see what I see, but I mean, from your perspective, how much has it been in terms of just the amount of stuff coming, whether that's from mainstream media or just from individuals and even other organizations? Well, I think it's, it's, it was really be hard to avoid the criticism of me, frankly. It's like, (laughs) it's not like, um, I'm, I'm not, I'm like, I'm not dying to get, to get press. It's just the, it's just, uh, my name gets a lot of clicks Mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, it's important to understand that the press is primarily a click maximizing machine, not a truth maximizing machine. Mm. Um, and really it's, it's somewhat of a Darwinian exercise. If, If you're not a click maximizing machine, well, you don't get the clicks and then you don't get the revenue and then the you know, the company goes under. Yeah. So the entire incentive structure is max is maximized clicks, not maximized truth. And so that's why you'll have, why you'll have sort of, uh, incendiary headlines that are like really way over the top or because often the truth is, is boring and complicated, <laughs> uh, or it's certainly more like a sort of, you know, version of the truth that the media will, will put out will be more salacious. Um, you know, it'll be spicier than the, than reality, and and they'll it, it'll be the Cliff Notes version. But you know, the the drama. I mean, the media is going to be, give you generally the dramatized Cliff Notes version of reality. Because mm. um, if if it's if they, if they give you the, the the full thing, it's too complicated and can bore people. And um, and if if they, if, they, if they really give give it too much balance, it really doesn't have enough controversy to get the click. This is the incentive structure, and yeah, so when you know whatever you incent will happen. Um, so, anyway, so that's the situation with with the media. Um, 
And the, the, the legacy media have had to deal with a shrinking advertising pie for a long time because uh, Google and Facebook and whatnot have taken so much of the, of the advertising revenue. Um, so they're, it's been... They're happy, about, they're happy about that? Well, it's been a struggle for the traditional media. Yeah. So that, that, that they've been forced to be click-maximizing machines or die. Um, so... How do you think? How do you think that's going to play out over time? I mean, I think a lot of people recognize the problem with the sort of clickbait model. Like it's it's really a broken incentive structure mm-hmm. that's leading to increased manipulation. Um, you know, ridic- ridiculous headlines. I mean, yeah, we see a lot. It's it's why it can be difficult to see the line between satire and reality now because it's just gotten, yes. it's gotten so goofy that you can't tell whether something is from the Babylon Bee or the Onion. Like many times. Yeah. Or, it's getting totally crazy. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, there's been stuff about you know fitness being linked to fascism and white supremacy and you know I mean, bodybuilding is a... Fitness, really. I wasn't aware that uh, yeah, that's what I was seriously, promoting. But. I mean, people should obviously be in good shape. It's just a matter of health <laughs> and feeling good. And I, I mean, I should work out. I, I, I don't really work out much. Um, but, uh, I agree. I think I agree with the idea of working out and I agree with the idea of fitness and, and, uh, it's, it's just obviously a fundamental, you know, healthy way to live. Yeah. I mean, come on. I'm rep- I'm repping a t-shirt right now. I don't know if you can read that. This is the yes. get, get jacksonated t-shirt. Okay, cool. So nice. that's the movement. I'm trying to get everyone in the gym, get jacked, get, get jacked, yeah. get jacksonated. Our podcast today is sponsored by the wellness company. As you guys know, I'm always looking for the best health and wellness products to give me an edge. But if I eliminate businesses that have gone woke or forced vax mandates on their employees, there are fewer and fewer companies that I feel comfortable supporting. That's where the wellness company comes in. The wellness company was formed by a team of doctors who lost their jobs for speaking up about mandates and pushing back against lockdowns. They offer live telemedicine and a wide range of custom formulated supplements to help keep you at your best. My favorite wellness company product is their spike support formula. It's the only product I've seen that contains ingredients researched to block and dissolve COVID spike proteins in the bloodstream. Taking daily spike support can bring better mental clarity and increased energy levels. Whether you're vaxxed or unvaxxed, it doesn't discriminate and neither does the wellness company. Get back to that pre-COVID feeling. Go to twc.health forward slash Zuby and use code Zuby, that's Z-U-B-Y, to save 15% at checkout. That's twc.health forward slash Zuby. And use the code Zuby at checkout. Um, something I wanted to ask you is, and this is a big question. This is a big question, but with all the stuff that you do, what what motivates you? What's the big driver? Well, I mean, generally, I'm, what I'm trying to do is uh, take the set of actions that maximize the probability that the future will be good uh, for civilization, that we will expand the scale of scope, scope and scale of consciousness. Uh, so that we're better able to understand the nature of the universe. Mm. Uh, so I would call my, I'd say I have like a philosophy of curiosity um, that's maybe best articulated by Douglas Adams in The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Okay. Um, so where, you know, that's where they you know, famously has like the, oh, it's a big computer comes up with the answer 42, but the really hard part is what question to ask. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's like we want to, try to understand more about the nature of the universe, understand like, what does it all mean? Where, where do we come from? Where are we going? Where does this all end up as what's real? Are there aliens? Mm. I mean, 
Well, they seem to be confirming some stuff quite recently. I mean, <laughs> I I have yet to see act- any actual evidence of, of aliens. So, and I'm really deep in space. Yeah. So, um, yeah. Uh, I, I I mean, if, if if there is some actual evidence of aliens or an actual UFO, I'll be there in a second. You know, I mean, obviously when it's, you know, it's like, are we, are we talking about buddies here? Or like, is it a UFO? Is there advanced technology? I mean, that would be very, very interesting. Um, and hopefully they're friendly. Uh, <laughs> if they manage to get all the way here from another star system, I mean, their technology is going to be far in excess. I mean, we're, we'll be primitive compared mm-hmm. to them, you know. So, um but I also think like if, if there aren't a- aliens or that that's actually perhaps even a, a bigger concern because um, you know, if there actually aren't aliens in our galaxy or anyone near us, then effectively uh, this consciousness, this consciousness on planet earth is um, the light of consciousness is like, it's like a tiny candle in a vast darkness mm. um, and a fragile candle. And we, we should just do everything we can to make sure it does not go out. What do you think is the greatest threat to humanity? Well, I think um, digital superintelligence uh, is a, a real, real concern. Mm-hmm. Now, I think that um, digital superintelligence or artificial general intelligence, as it's called sometimes or mostly, is uh, more likely to be good than bad. But it's just that the the probability of a, a bad outcome is not zero. And I think, I think probably the more we worry about a bad outcome, the less likely it is to occur. Okay. Um, so, so I think we should be, you know, just say like, let's try to steer the um, AI in a, in a good direction. What do you think that potentially bad outcome would be? I mean, I've, I've got ideas in my head. I mean, I've the, seen some sci-fi movies. Sure. But. I mean, the, 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 obviously the extreme case would be it wipes out humanity. You know, yeah. that would be, it's not a zero percent chance. Uh, hopefully, it's a low low chance, but it's not zero. Um, or or it wipes doesn't maybe just wipe, maybe it doesn't wipe us all out. But you know, it's kind of like the you know, or the chimps and the gorillas. They they're they're in small sections of Earth, but they're yeah. You know, and we don't like it's not like we're like going and hunting them down or anything. But but they're they're contained in small areas of Earth, yes. and so they don't um, we don't prioritize them. We don't prioritize yeah. them, and I'm and I'm not sure that like they're, they're certainly not like expanding. Yeah, <laughs> you know they got the they're uh, so, so they, 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 that could be a also not not a great outcome. Whereas mm-hmm. like it, it doesn't kill all the humans, just keeps enough around just for the hell of it. Farm us, <laughs> yeah, or like yeah. just to see what happens. Like study <laughs> us, like gorillas yeah. in the mist or whatever. Yeah. You know, just people would like just study us out of curiosity potentially. Um, that would still not be a great outcome for humanity, you know. No. Um, I mean, I think we want to, like I said, expand the scope and scale of consciousness, uh, you know, both biological and digital, and ultimately go out, become a multi-planet species, become an interstellar species, visit these other star systems, and and uh, maybe we do meet uh, uh, aliens, mm. um, or maybe we visit these various star systems and we see, wow, here's an alien civilization that lasted ten million years. Um, and did incredible things and then ultimately died out potentially. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, we, I think we, we could find that there's a whole bunch, that there's a whole bunch of, of, uh, dead one planet civilizations never got beyond the home planet. Um, so 
Um, I mean, due to expansion, expansion of the sun, Earth arguably may become uninhabitable as soon as uh, half a billion years from now, which is a long time, but mm-hmm. Earth's been around for four and a half billion. So that would only be a 10% increase in um, the lifespan of Earth. And so, and if you look at, if you date civilization from uh, perhaps the first writing, that's about 5,000 years old. And that's uh, 5,500 years old. That's a uh, kind of a archaic pre-cuneiform in Sumeria. So that's sort of like, that's a, that's a very short period of time. So say like Earth's been around for one and a half billion years. Writing is say 5,000 years old. So um, if you date civilization from the first writing, which you know, is probably a reasonable number, then civilization's only been around for one millionth of Earth's existence. Mm. Not long at all. Not long at all. I feel like we're a flash in the pan, basically. Mm-hmm. So, um, anyway, so I think we we want to do everything we can to um, obviously make life on Earth great and uh, make make sure Earth is solid and um, that civilization is on on a sound footing. You know, keep making Earth better, um, at, but then expand to Mars and ultimately. You know, to, to the rest of the solar system mm-hmm. and uh, eventually to other star systems. Um, be a space-faring civilization, like, you know, in the good sci-fi movies and yeah, yeah. shows. It's like, you know, Star Trek and whatnot. Let's, you know, go out there and see you know, civilizations who have never... You know, I mean, it'd be pretty cool if we meet aliens and hopefully they're friendly, you know. Yeah. <laughs> um, and just... Uh, gain a vastly greater understanding of the universe. I think it might depend on which humans they meet first, whether or not they yeah, I think we need I mean, to be quite cautious about uh, who they who they meet first. <laughs> yeah. Because they might form some quick judgments based on that. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, but, like, we at least want to have the opportunity. I mean, right now, we don't really know how to go anywhere close to the speed of light, mm-hmm. let alone beyond the speed of light. So it will take us a long time to get to near star systems. I mean, optimistically, with known physics, we could get to the nearest star system in about 40 or 50 years. Okay. It'll be very difficult to even get, make it that short. Mm-hmm. It's a long time to be traveling through deep space. So, um, anyway, I think that's the future that would be, that's, that's exciting. And yeah. there need to be things that are exciting and inspiring where you wake up in the morning and it's not just about solving one problem or another or some sort of internecine struggle with, between the humans, but, but that there are inspiring goals collectively as humanity where we're really excited about mm-hmm. about that. And I think um, being a space-faring civilization is something that I think a lot of people would find very exciting and, and inspiring. And, um, you know, even if they don't go with themselves, they can just, you know, kind of live vicariously through those that went. I mean, I think, you know, with the Apollo landings, it was, you know, they were literally said for all mankind, you know. Um, and um, I think everyone was proud to be a human at that point. Yes. It's like we we actually went to we went to a damn moon. Mm. <laughs> that's such an important sentence like you just said there. Actually, wow, that, you know, yeah, you you just said something there that that's actually really important. You said people being proud to be human, and I think actually we increasingly live in a time where a big part of the problem is that that's not the case. Yeah, um, I think oftentimes people view it with a sort of nationalistic lens about people being sure. proud to be American or proud to be British or whatever, and those people recognize that that sort of patriotism seems to be declining. 
But I actually think, yeah, as a species as a whole, perhaps we're not feeling as yeah. optimistic about our own species as we should be. And I think that there's been a lot of fear, a lot of people living in constant fear, perhaps people feeling like the future is going to be worse than the present and even worse than the past in some ways. And yeah, I think that's causing a lot of psychological problems and having real impact on society and culture. Because if you don't think the future is going to be better right. than the present, then you lose hope. Totally. And it's important to have that spirit of adventure. Yeah. And I think also if, if people lose hope in the future, or if they have, uh, you know, if, there's, if they're pessimistic about the future, then they're also unlikely to have kids, in which case you get the civilizational decline. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, we just have, you know, for most of both demographic collapse, like the birth rates are just we're crazy low. Yeah. Um, so uh, we're certainly, I think, not, not expanding and we're really going to contract pretty significantly. Um, I mean, Japan last year had twice as many deaths as births. That's crazy. Yeah. So. Well, I mean, every, every single Western country yeah. has a below replacement birth rate. Yeah. And just generally the trend is as soon as you get sort of urbanization, frankly, and unfortunately, education <laughs> tends to, urbanization and education reduce birth rate. Yeah. Um, so, and that's, that trend will ultimately happen, I think, throughout the world. So, um, so that's why I'm, you know, encouraging people, like, let's at least, like, maintain our numbers, <laughs> you know, like, we don't need to expand in a crazy way, but it's at least maintain our numbers, maybe a little bit of growth. Mm -hmm. um, so. Why, why do you think so many people think the opposite? I mean, you, you hear a lot of talk about over. I, I think the whole overpopulation it's thing total is rubbish. Like, is, yeah, I think I think it's a massive psyop, and yeah, yeah. it's not true. <laughs> yeah, but but why do so many uh, otherwise smart people buy buy into that? Well, I think to some degree this is a side effect of the environmental movement. Okay, you know, so uh, you know the sort of environmental movement. I think started off well, where it was. Um, saying, look, we need to move to sustainable energy, uh, which is, is correct in the long term. We do need to move to sustainable energy. It's, it's tautological. If we don't move to sustainable energy, then it's unsustainable and we'll run out and civilization will grind to a halt. So we do need to have sustainable energy over time. Uh, there's obviously a concern with, the, with climate change. Um, although like, I'm, I'm of the opinion that while there is a long-term concern for climate change, there are there is not really much of a short-term concern. Like mm -hmm. it's things, it's it's a very slow process, um, and I think we don't we don't need to sort of be um, stopping people from farming or having cows or, or or whatever. Like this is crazy. This is then the, and, and that's like small potatoes from an environmental standpoint. The, the, the really the, the 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 fundamental thing from an environmental standpoint is if, if you've got billions of tons of um, fossil fuels, essentially, uh, you know, uh, carbon in liquid and gaseous form or solid form in the case of coal that's buried deep underground and you move it from deep underground into the, into the atmosphere and the oceans, you obviously change the chemistry of the, of the oceans and atmosphere. Mm. And if you keep doing that for a long time, we'll eventually change the chemistry enough that there will indeed be climate change. Um, but earth is very big and human and humans for, are, are small. Mm. <laughs> I mean, uh, Tim Urban I calculated that you could fit all the humans on earth um, on one floor in the city of New York. On one floor? On one floor, yes. Now, you've kind of wedged in there, but, yeah. you know, but... Uh, oh, okay, so if you just kind of spread the light well, like throughout the city. Okay, shoulder to shoulder, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, whatever. Okay. It's, it's a, 
like basically cross like the cross sectional area of humans is small. Like mm-hmm. we think that there are a lot of people, but and that's if you live in like London or New York, you'd be like, oh wow, there's a lot of people. But this is that's a very rare situation. Mm-hmm. Most of the time, you know, if you're if you're flying, um, you know, across the U.S. or internationally, it's empty. It's empty. <laughs> it's empty. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you yeah. fly from LA to New York. Most of the time, there's like you don't see anyone. No, yeah. So, um, yeah. So, like, if 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 you're if you're trying to drop a ball on somebody's head while flying from LA to New York, <laughs> you'd have a real hard time. You know, you're gonna miss. Uh, it's just not a. You know, we, we, we humans are not densely packed. They're, mm-hmm. um, so, yeah. Um, plenty, well, plenty of room for more people. That's basically the situation. So, so anyway, so I think the environmental movement kind of got somewhat overzealous and kind of was, and, and like in the limit of environmentalism, you, you start to conclude that humanity is a plague on, on earth, mm. that humanity is actually the problem. That's a big one. Yeah. And um, that's like obviously taking the environmental movement just too far. Mm. But there are literally people who believe this. They're like extinctionists. Yes. Um, New York Times as some months ago had an article um, front page article with with some guy who, and, and his quote was, "There are eight billion on people on Earth, and it would be better if there were none." That's dark. Yeah, That's I'm really like, dark. hey, buddy, you can start with yourself. Yeah. You know, yeah, no, if, if you really want to, <laughs> you know, make a difference. So, but yeah. uh, you know, take your own advice here. Um, but it, but that that's like a crazy viewpoint. You know, that's like literally saying. Let's genocide humanity. Mm-hmm. I'm like, what? <laughs> How can you say that with a straight face? That's like, like total madness. Um, but but people like like I said, in, in the limit of environment of environmentalism, it, it sort of becomes like an ingrown toenail. Mm-hmm. You know, it's sort of like yeah, toenail's fine, but not if it's like warped and ingrown. It's it's just gone too far. Um, humanity's not a blight on on the face of the earth, and frankly, even with climate change. Uh, life on earth will still continue. Um, I mean, the calamities that earth has suffered where life continued afterwards, like gigantic meteorite impacts, super volcanoes, the continents drifting all over the place. Uh, there've been times in earth's past where it's been like a total snowball or it's been absolutely sweltering hot. And, um, you know, life, you know, we we had extinct, many extinction events, but there were, uh, life continued. Mm -hmm. Um, but, um, you know, we, like we didn't, we don't see the dinosaurs now, but they've had a good run for you know, whatever a hundred plus million years. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, so even if there's catastrophic climate change on Earth, life continues. Um, it just may not be the life as we know it. It'll, it may not be humans; it'll be something else. Um, so, what we're talking about with climate change is not a threat to all life on Earth, but really maybe a, a threat to human humans or and dislocation of humans if there's low-lying countries that, um, you know, the water level rises and now they're underwater type of thing. So, um, so I, I mean, I think one just needs to strike the right balance by saying like, look, over time we need to move to a sustainable energy economy and we, we can't just keep taking billions of tons of carbon from deep underground and putting it in the atmosphere mm-hmm. and expect nothing will happen forever. Yeah. Um, but we also don't need to be alarmist about it and, and super negative and, massively disrupt people's lifestyles. I mean, I think people can continue to live a normal life yes. and, and they shouldn't be guilty about being human or sort of frankly having a stake. It's mm. fine. <laughs> if you haven't heard already, it's Smooth Sack Summer. 
That's right, this is the summer to keep your man parts cool while still looking hot with Manscaped. And you can jump right in and get 20% off plus free shipping with the code ZUBI at manscaped.com. The leaders in Below the Waist Grooming are making sure we all have a ball this summer by giving us everything we need to stay fresh downstairs. The Manscaped Performance Package 4.0 has everything you need to prepare that summer bod. Their Lawnmower 4.0 trimmer features a cutting-edge ceramic blade to reduce grooming accidents, thanks to their advanced skin-safe technology. It's even waterproof, so you can groom yourself in the shower if that's how you roll. The package also includes their Weed Whacker Ear and Nose Hair Trimmer, Crop Preserver Ball Deodorant, Manscaped Boxers, and the Shed Travel Bag. Get 20% off plus free shipping with the code ZUBI at manscaped.com. That's 20% off plus free shipping with the code ZUBI, Z-U-B-Y, at manscaped.com. It's Smooth Sack Summer, boys. Get on board or get left behind. Yeah, it, it all something that strikes me with that agenda as well and people who push it is it also seems like Western countries climbing the ladder and then pulling the ladder up after them, right? So when you have large developing nations somewhere somewhere like India, lots of parts of Africa and so yeah. on. And it's like, okay, the Western nations have gone through this whole process sure. to even get to a stage where you can afford to care about such things. You've got other nations that are developing and they're trying to get up to the level of prosperity that say the USA has right now. And you yeah. know, you want them to care about the environment, but it's like, people are still poor. People are not going to care about the environment until they've got their basic needs met. Sure, so there's sure. a part of it where it's this, um, you know, it's, it's this sort of belief system that I, I think is very, what's the, what's the right term? It's almost like a, to use a Rob Henderson term, it's like a luxury belief, mm-hmm. right? You know, it's like, okay, it's all good for you to view things that way. But if you think about the average person yeah. in many parts of the, de- you know, developing world, they can't afford to be thinking this way. They still need mm-hmm. to get up to at least the basic level that our countries are in. Yeah. I, I mean, I agree with that. Um, I mean, I agree with what you just said, but I, I also think that the cost of sustainable energy has mm-hmm. been drop it, dropping tremendously and you're seeing um, a lot more uh, wind and solar, um, and, uh, you know, pair that with, uh, with a battery and you've got, uh, you know, continuous power from wind, wind and solar, uh, that's actually very competitive. Mm-hmm. Like, it's so cost competitive. Um, and, um, actually one of the, one of the nice things about say solar batteries, is you, you don't need to run high power lines all over the place You can have some, you know, localized, uh, solar battery situation on your house or, um, factory building or it's you can kind of decentralize the power generation and and i think that's actually better for people to Mm -hmm. have decentralized power generation um and uh also decentralized communications um like a lot of places they skipped all the sort of phone landline stuff and went to cell phones yes in fact a lot of places um in the world have way better cell connectivity than you know silicon valley which is bizarre yeah (laughs) um you know, so, yeah. <laughs> when it comes to the idea of underpopulation, what is your biggest concern about that? If there are not, you've said many times publicly that we need <clears throat> more people. We need more human beings. Yeah. What, what, what would happen if, you know, this is, this is not my perspective, but for the people who are there who do think, you know, who do have this sort of Malthusian worldview, 
and they think that there's yeah. too many people and, and there aren't enough resources. Wrong, and he's been wrong for a very <laughs> yeah, long, long time, time, but, yeah. you know, kind of like Still comes back. Communism, just, it won't go yeah, away. Exactly. Um, <laughs> there we go again. So, so what, what's the greatest fear there? If people are not reproducing as they have been for most of human history, what's the, what's the greatest concern there? Well, I think it's like what we risk is a civilizational collapse. Yeah. You know, uh, so, and, and, and somewhat of a depressing civilizational collapse. If the birth rate keeps dropping every year and, and uh, population just keeps going into the sort of like negative death spiral, literally, um, then uh, it won't die with a bang. It'll die with, an, with a whimper in adult diapers. Mm. I mean, that's a, that's a bleak end to civilization. So, um, you know, I keep looking at the birth rate numbers, which are just like available online, you know, it's, it's not like it's basic facts. Um, and, uh, hoping that the birth rates will turn around um, and that every year it gets worse. Yeah. What do you think could practically be done to to help with that? Because a, a big factor in this is, you know, I, I talk to a lot of, a lot of yeah. young, young men and young women. Um, you know, I'm, I'm in my, my own position as well. Yeah. You should and so yeah, I, I, I plan to, I, I, yeah. I will, I will. Yeah. Um, but due to, you know, from everything from social and cultural factors, yeah. economic factors, financial factors, a lot of young men and women say the average 20 year old or even 25 year old, they find the whole idea of having children, bringing new life into the world very scary because yeah. they feel like, Hey, you know, I don't, I don't have the money. I can't afford it. I can't even buy a house. I'm in debt. I'm struggling to keep my head above water. Yeah. So on. So what do you think could practically be done in USA, Canada, UK, Europe, all these developed countries, South Korea, Japan, all these places where the, you know, population is declining, birth rates are declining. I, I think it's one thing to, to recognize the issue but what do you think can be done on a sort of practical, reasonable level? Well, I, I, I do think that like some of the, like the incentive structure in, in a lot of countries is uh, against having kids. Yes. Um, so um, like it, it's, it's sort of, it is, it is expensive to have kids, especially if you want to sort of want to give the best education and all that sort of stuff. So, it's a, uh, it, it is, it, you know, uh, financially difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I say that, but then ironically, the higher someone's income, fewer kids. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it doesn't totally make sense, um, that you have an inverse correlation with income and, and kids, mm. um, where it's, so, so, so I guess people may, may sort of think that, but it's not actually real. You know, I think that the, the fears, there's these unjustified fears of like, well, if I have a kid, things are going to be financially terrible. And it's actually mm. not true. You know, it's, just, um, I, 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 I'm, 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 I don't know that I have a, a good answer to this because yeah. I'm trying to, you know, figure it out. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I know that for a lot of young people and some of this is media and cultural programming, yeah. but a lot of people have been pushed over the decades, the idea that having children ruins your life, <laughs> right? That it, 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 uh, it takes away your freedom and your autonomy and you can't have fun and do all this cool stuff. And you've got to just, 
you know, I think the idea of parenthood, I think the solution is, and I don't know exactly how to do this, but I think the idea of parenthood and family needs to be made cool. Yeah, it does. It needs to be made cool again. Yeah, absolutely. And I think people just don't understand, like nothing will make you happier than having kids. Um, It will absolutely improve your happiness level to have kids. Mm -hmm. Um, And I mean, we're kind of like programmed for that. You know, it's (laughs) like if we, we just say like, like in the old days where it's like, you know, people were sort of start like food was like short supply, they had plague, like, you know, it's like trying to just start trying to survive from one year to the next in the old days was like a big deal. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, now, now, now we have, now that's kind of more or less normal that you would survive from one year to the next. Um, so, you know, we're going to become, I guess, a complacent, but 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 basically, if, if if it wasn't rewarding instinctively to have kids, we wouldn't have them. Yes. You know, um, I mean, almost none of the world was literate until not that long ago. So it's not like you're like, oh, let me read a bunch of books. Uh, you, you kind of have to instinctively love having kids. Yeah. Otherwise, you, you can't read about it. And it. <laughs> it's like, it's just don't have any books. Yeah. So, um, so I think that's important to understand. You're, you will absolutely be happier if you have kids. Um, absolutely. Um, we're, we're literally, we've evolved to have that, as all creatures have. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can take, say, like, I don't know, like a, you know, like, a, I don't know, an alley cat or something, like, or like, like a, or a bobcat, like some, some like wild creature that would normally be quite fierce and unfriendly. Mm-hmm. Um, and like kill or eat anything it came across. But the moment it has, um, you know, cubs or puppies or whatever, it, or kittens, uh, it becomes a, you know, that becomes loving mom. Mm-hmm. You know, so like the, 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 the cat that was really mean is like taking care of its little kittens. It's instinct. It's yes. like, you know, it's genetic programming. So people should really expect that if they have kids, they will improve their quality of life, not make it worse. In what um, ways you, well, we know you, you, you've got a lot of kids. Yeah. I'm trying to set a good example. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. How, how has having kids made your, made your life better? How does it, how does it make you happier and how does it motivate and drive the things that you're doing? Well, I think, I mean, I don't know. It's like, I think it's normal to love your kids. You know, it's just, it's just kind of an automatic thing. And they've got this little creature that's depending on you to take care of it. And, very rewarding to do so, mm-hmm. I think inherently. Uh, so, um, I mean, they're a lot of fun. They're, but uh, I don't know. You love them. They love you. It's great. <laughs> um, do do so, you find, do you find being a father is a driver? Is, is that a particular driver and motivator for the way you think and the things you're trying to, the things that you're not trying to do, the things you are doing? I think it does motivate me to, you know, want to make sure that the world is, the future is going to be good for, yeah for my kids, you know, and, um, and, um, you know, sometimes people might say like, well, you know, uh, so, so sometimes I'm com- complimented and said, and they will say like, well, it's very magnanimous, magnanimous of you or altruistic of you to care about civilization. But I think actually, like, even if somebody is very selfish, uh, you should still care about civilization because we cannot live in the absence of civilization. Mm-hmm. Um, you cannot live alone. We cannot, you know, if you want to know what being alone and without civilization is, just look at like naked and afraid, you know, <laughs> it's not, they don't want to, it's, it's not, 
we we all like actually hanging out with other humans. We all actually we all actually like each other more than we think. <laughs> um, in reality, um, one of my sons, uh, Saxon, who's sort of autistic, uh, but he's kind of awesome. He's like an oracle of wisdom. Um, you know, he, he, he for a long time he was very. I'd, I'd like try to have like a family dinner at a restaurant once a week. You know, just go out somewhere. And um, and Saxon for a long time was really didn't understand why we we're doing this. Um, he's like, why are we going out? <laughs> and um, and then finally he 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 had an epiphany and said, oh, the reason people go to restaurants is to hang out with strangers. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, that's actually true yeah. because you can get the same restaurant food delivered. <laughs> You can call your friends over, yeah. but you know what you can't get unless you go to a restaurant mm-hmm. is hanging out with strangers. So we actually like hanging out with strangers. Right until he discovers nightclubs. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like nightclubs. You go to a nightclub, you're like, you know, you know. A dark room with yeah, loud you're music. Like, you can barely see anyone. It's music's loud, but it's still kind of fun. And you're just with a bunch of strangers, basically. We just, humans actually do love other humans more yeah. than they may think they do. Um, and you think, you look at like, say, what what's like one of the worst punishments in prison is solitary confinement. Mm-hmm. And, it's, and it's not like, you know, if you're not in solitary confinement, you know, the, the rest of the prison is maybe not like the most awesome group to hang out with, but yeah. it's way better than being alone. Yeah, you're probably safer in there, but yeah, you don't want to um, be there. So humans love other humans more than they realize. Yeah. I've listened to a lot, a lot of your interviews mm-hmm. and a lot of stuff is about the sort of here and now, but I'm I'm curious to know a little bit more about your your journey people yeah. see all the things that you're doing now with tesla and putting rockets in space and buying twitter and you know restoring free speech trying to make humanity an interplanetary species but tell tell me more i was in um i went to south africa for the first mm-hmm. time just a few months ago so okay. i was in uh i went to johannesburg i went to i went to cape town i know that that's where that's where you grew up and you spent your childhood. Uh, mostly in Johannesburg, in Johannesburg and Pretoria yeah. and um, for a couple of years in Durban. Okay. I visited Cape Town a few times, uh, but didn't live there. Mm-hmm. What was, can you tell me, can you tell me a little bit more about your, the, the, the pre super multiple CEO, Elon Musk, um, you know, super yeah, I mean, ultra. I had kind of like a, I wouldn't say, um, I really mostly sad and unhappy childhood actually mm. um would not it was not a it wasn't 100 percent bad but it was pretty rough and uh i lived in south africa till i was 17 and um and then i was able to get canadian canadian citizenship through my mom because she uh was born in canada okay um and so i was like well um you know i left when i was 17 um so you know i think my views of South Africa are somewhat scarred by kind of a negative childhood experience, like literally scars. Yeah. <laughs> I've literally quite a few scars. Um, so, um, it was, it was, it was, it was tough. So well, there's certainly plenty of good things about the country, but, uh, you know, my particular experience was not that great. So I hear that. Yeah. I know you, um, one of your first projects was a video game called Blastar. Yeah. Am I getting that right? Yeah. Tell us about Blastar. Well, I always loved video games when I was a kid and computers. Um, so, the, like, the video games back then were extremely primitive, you know. Mm. Um, uh, so, 
I guess when I was about, I don't know, 10 or 10 or so, I, I saw like the first computer. I mean, I read a lot of books and then I saw that you could actually have a computer, which is, I thought, wow, this is the best <laughs> thing ever. Um, it was a Commodore VIC-20. I think it had like 8K of RAM or something. Yeah. <laughs> 8K. Yeah. That's crazy. Um, it was best. I thought it was best thing ever. And so I, I, and I got a book on programming, taught myself how to write, write uh, computer programs. Um, and then gradually progressed from you know, the Commodore VIC-20 to the um, uh, Sinclair Spectrum. Mm-hmm. Uh, which was actually a pretty brilliant little computer. That was a 48K computer that was felt very advanced <laughs> after the VIC-20. Um, and then, I, yeah, so I, I was just kind of programming. And, I, and you couldn't really get very many games, so I was like, well, I'll program games, mm. play them myself. Uh, so, uh, but it is it is interesting that the that this, this game, simple game that I wrote when I was a kid, and I think I wrote it when I was like 11 or something, um, and, uh, I did all the, gra- the, the graphics and the music and everything. So pr- primitive <laughs> graphics, primitive yeah, music, yeah. but still, um, and, um, yeah, I was actually, you know, I sold the game for money, which was, wasn't that much money, but it was a lot for a little kid. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wrote, I wrote a bunch of other games too, uh, when I was a kid and then actually had, a. I worked briefly at a software company, a games company called Rocket Science in okay. Palo Alto, which had nothing to do with, with rockets. It was just a games company. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, uh, I don't know, I wrote, I wrote software for, I don't know, almost 20 years, from like age roughly 10 to 30. Um, and I heard you used to uh, play Quake a lot. Yeah. And got pretty, pretty darn good at that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, uh, yeah, <laughs> um, played a lot of Quake, um, and had uh, one of the best teams in the country, actually. Um, and I think I think it was the first, I think the first paid esports thing in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, or certainly one of the first. And um, um, we ended up coming second in that. Uh, we were actually coming first, but then the the best, I was the second best person on the team. The best person on the team, his computer crashed halfway through the game. So we ended up coming second, but, um, I think like we made a few thousand dollars or something. So it was pretty good at Quake back in the day. Yeah. And I heard you, did you want to, you wanted to get into, or at least you thought about getting into programming video games, but then is that, is that fair to say? I, I did actually but, okay. work on some fairly advanced video games okay. at, at this company, Rocket Science. Okay. Okay. Um, but, uh, that, that's, um, I, I like video games, but I wanted to sort of have a, I don't know, um, as big of an impact on the world as possible. Like I said, like try, try to take the set of actions that I think are most likely to result in a, in a good future, be as useful as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, yeah, so I, I mean, I, I was, you know, for a while there, was was pursuing a path of developing technology for electric vehicles. Um, and that's what I was going to be doing my graduate studies at Stanford on. Okay. Uh, is sort of advanced energy storage technology for electric vehicles, and are putting putting that on hold to start uh, an internet company. 
because I, I figured like the technology of electric vehicles would advance and I could come back to it, which I did later. Um, but the internet was like, it was the, which was going supernova at the time. Mm. And this is in 95. So, um, so I wanted to be part of building the internet basically. What was your first impression of the internet? Because I think for young people now is like, the inter- it feels like the internet's always been there. Yeah. Um, and like, I think people like forget. like you breathe or something. Yeah. I think people forget that, I mean, even within my lifetime, yeah. I remember when nobody had email addresses. I remember sure. when people were terrified to put their credit card details online, when yeah. people thought selling books online was a dumb idea and this yeah. Amazon thing was never going to work. Like that's all within my own lifetime. Right. Um, so stuff has changed very, very quickly. But what was your first impression of the internet and how did you so quickly realize its potential? Well, you know, as, as we're talking about, I, you know, into computers from when I was even, even before I even had a computer, I was reading about, reading about them. So, um, so I had some like very early primitive computers and then, um, had a computer with a modem. So like dialing like a bulletin board or in these various sort of very early pre internet things. Um, and, uh, and, and then like, the, like the, you know, you, you start to, start to have the internet go beyond just universities and uh, like a handful of universities and government institutions, um, to be kind of commercialized. Um, and, and, and it was just growing expon- exponentially. So it, it, I mean, the way, the way I sort of visualized it it was like the humanity was like acquiring a nervous system. Mm. So previously information had to flow from one person to another. So you had to meet in person, you had to call them on a phone or uh, you had to, somebody had to carry a letter by hand to someone else. Um, and that was the way that information flowed. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you wanted to have access to a book, you'd have to go to a library. Um, and the book, you know, most of the libraries would only have a very small subset of the books that exist. Um, so your access to information was very limited, um, and very slow. And, but, but as soon as you have the internet where, where everyone's connected, now you could be in a very remote location. And if you've got access to the internet, you have access to all of humanity's information, everything. Mm-hmm. Every, you have access to the entire kind of collective group mind. Um, so it's like moving from like where we're, communicating almost via osmosis, like just point, like literally direct contact to, and, and very limited amount of information to. Now, anyone has access to all of the world's information. Um, I mean, right, the internet, you, you can learn anything on the internet. Yeah, it's for crazy. Free. Yeah, I mean, all like the MIT lectures are on YouTube. Um, you can become an expert in anything for free if you've got an internet connection. Yes, and I think people haven't realized that yet. Yeah, I mean, I guess if you ask them, they know it's <laughs> true, but they, they don't quite appreciate that that the the, the equality of access to information mm. is so radically better today than it was in the past. It's it's, it's no comparison. Um, you know, I mean, for, for a long time, like, books were very rare, and, like, people would have a small collection of books um, before the, the Gutenberg Press that have to literally copy out the book by hand. So having a book was like a, like a relic. Yes. You know, it was like, it's a, hardly anyone had books, hardly anyone could read. And even those that had books didn't have very many of them. Mm-hmm. Um, then you had, uh, 
the Gutenberg Press thing, and, and now you can make copies of books. You know, but still paper, still limited, still not that many. Um, so we should be actually quite excited about the fact that there is this massive leveling of opportunity of access to information because the, the those that did have books in the old days would be you know be like some the lord of some you know manor or something would would have their their library but it, even that would be a pretty small library mm-hmm. um and, and most people had notebooks so now you have access to vastly more information than you know the king of england did yes like in, in, in even a hundred years ago mm-hmm. like even say 20 40 years ago like the average person right now has access to more information than the most powerful person on earth did in say 1980 or even 1990 frankly i know i wish it felt like it well the, so the thing <laughs> is that like it's, it's in human nature to that, that our expectations recalibrate mm. so uh because you know the, the the difference between uh, almost any part of the world, really, unless it's actively at war, it you know versus like having to survive by yourself or with a small group, living off the land. It's it's it's, it's like our quality of life basically uh, is, is so dramatically better than the past. You have to say, well, why aren't we happy? It's because mm. Or, or sometimes why a lot of people aren't happy is that they, we just keep recalibrating, we keep setting our expectations higher, we keep moving the goalpost. Yeah. So, so it's, you know, um, keep moving the goalpost, keep recalibrating, then you just naturally will always be wanting things to be better than, than in the past. It's, it's kind of like, like our, you know, it's the saying goes like happiness is, Reality minus expectations. Mm-hmm. But if our expectations keep rising, then reality has to keep rising too. Um, and uh, yeah, so you know, overall, I think people should be more optimistic about the future, and I think should recognize that um, our life today is vastly better than it was uh, in times past. Um, that um, actually violence on average is, is much lower than it used to be. Oh, yeah. Um, war is rare. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, we have war in Ukraine, but it used to be like there would be war everywhere, yeah. you know? Um, Even just, I mean, just look at the past century. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's crazy. Well, yeah, the last century was insane. Yeah. Um, so, um, you know, it's now, it's now rare for there to be war. Yeah. Um, so... Yeah, I, I think people. I think people lack perspective and gratitude yeah. with, with all those things that you're saying, and I think that if people had more awareness of both history and how far and how quickly human beings have advanced, yeah. and how much things have gotten better, even if you just take yeah. something obvious things, poverty, yeah. you know, childhood mortality, women dying in childbirth, access yeah, to education, literacy, yeah. People were used to just be getting taken out left, right, and center. Mm-hmm. You know, it was very normal for, you know, a quarter or a third of uh, children to, to die before they reach age five. It was yep. very normal for young men to be yeah. going off to war and being brutalized and killed in all sorts of horrible ways. Yeah, in, that, in fact, like, so yeah. Napoleon um, said, like, all, every French woman has to have six kids. 
two will die in child, two two will die as children, two will die in war, mm-hmm. and then two more to continue France. Wow. Yeah, and that's like, <laughs> yeah, and it wasn't that, that far wrong with yeah. all the Napoleonic Wars and stuff. Yeah, I just think that because of that, because of the, when, I think with the lack of perspective comes a lack of gratitude. And then no matter how comfortable someone's life is, no matter how good things they are, even if they're, they're in good health, no one around them is yeah. sick or dying, whatever, and they're still just feeling down and sad. And I think if they could just reframe that in their minds, then I think people would be a lot happier. Yeah, absolutely. I, I really encourage people to be um, students of history. Yeah. I mean, there's some really good podcasts out there that are very compelling. Um, uh, you know, podcasts, there's like this Explorers podcast that's really interesting, like of the early sea voyages, you know, and how like everyone was like dying of scurvy because oh, they didn't even know vitamin C was a thing. Basic stuff, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and then they finally figured out, okay, vitamin C is a thing, yeah. so... Um, and, um, you know, uh, I mean, if you read history, like, man, it used to feel like we'd have like plagues every year, mm-hmm. like, like a third of the city died, you mm-hmm. know? Um, I mean, they only discovered, <laughs> they only just discovered germs less than fewer than 150 years ago. Yeah. Right. So people like didn't the even know the idea that you even wash, was, should wash your hands yeah, exactly. before, you know, delivering a baby or something that was, that was new. Yeah, the, the germ theory of disease was opposed for a long time by the medical establishment. Mm-hmm. It's like actually worth noting that like, you know, literally the official line was germs were fake. Yes. Uh, <laughs> and the doctors are clean. So Yeah, doctors, exactly. Um, and, and, you know, if you, if you don't have like a good sort of microscope or something and someone tells you that there's like these tiny creatures <laughs> that you can't see. I mean, it sounds like witchcraft, you yeah, know. Yeah. It's like... Um, that there's tiny creatures that you can't see that are on your hands. And if you touch something else, those tiny creatures are going to go in someone else to basically bacteria and viruses. And, uh, they're going to make them know, sick. <laughs> yeah. Make, yeah. Make them sick and maybe die. And, and, um, they're so small, you can't see them. Like mm. once you get micros- microscopes, people are like, okay, I see like little <laughs> things wiggling around. Like, I don't know what those things are, but they don't look good. Um, but for a while they were like, it, this, they're like, this is preposterous. This, you're trying to tell me little tiny, Things that are the small are, are the real reason we're getting ill as opposed to like, you know, bad spirits or something, you know, like, because they would, like, they would just think that there was like bad air or something. It's mm. like, this too place is cursed, you know? Too much blood, stick some leeches yeah. this, this This place is cursed. That's mm. why we get ill. <laughs> it's like, or maybe this, it's got some bacteria. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it took a while. And they put that, put that for a long time. Um, I really didn't even figure out like antibiotics until the last century. Yes. So. Yeah. Because in World War One, yeah. I believe so many more people died, died from, yeah. of infections yeah. than died from actual wounding. Yeah. yeah. I mean, if you're sitting there in a trench covered in mud and blood yeah. and you get a scratch. Yes. I mean, that scratch is probably end of you, you know. Yeah. Have you, what's the name of that movie? The one that was like all filmed in one take. The World War. It's, is it 19, 1917 or? 1917. I think that's it. Yeah. That that movie just made me like, gosh, I'm glad that I did not have to yeah. deal well, with that. Well, there was some next level slaughter. Yeah, it was brutal. Yeah. I wonder, what, do you ever wonder what the things are, you know how we look can look back at something like, you know, the germs, which seems very obvious now. I wonder what the things are that are happening right now that people are getting sick from and dying from that a hundred years from now, people are going to look back and be like, wait, they didn't, they didn't know that. How did they not know that? Well, really, the probability of death at this point, I mean, unless someone's engaging in very dangerous activity, um, is is low. 
Um, so our lifespans, we're, we're really reaching pretty much the end of our natural lifespans. Mm. So now if, if somebody uh, drinks a lot of alcohol, heavy drugs, or uh, smoking is really bad, yeah. you know, these things can have a serious impact on lifespan. But if you don't do anything like that, you're probably, you know, probably going to live till 75, 80 years old. Um, you know, we're, we're, we're kind of like our pre-programmed to live around that, that your human lifespan's around, around 80, you yeah. know? So, um, that's just what's programmed into us. Um, and then, um, actually for whatever reason, uh, women are programmed to live slightly longer than men. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they, it, it could be that you got XY chromosome and, and like men don't have the redundancy of a double X chromosome. So if there's an error on either the X or the Y, it's going to, you know, reduce your lifespan. I think actually technically testosterone, I think also reduces lifespan. Yeah, it does. yeah. Yeah. So. And then we also do a lot of really stupid stuff. We do a lot of stupid <laughs> stuff, but, um, but, but, but the, just the statistics are very clear. I think it's mm-hmm. everywhere in the world. Women live longer than men, even if you account for war and adventures. And what's really interesting as well is that the probability of a male child being born is slightly higher. It is 51 than 49. Yeah. So it's interesting that it actually accounts for that. Yeah. It's just men are more likely to die at every year of age. Yeah. Literally from a baby to, to to one year old. Um, Oh, at at, at every stage of life. I I believe it's literally every stage of life. I didn't know that. That's interesting. Tell tell me more about um. So, I'll be honest. Of all, of all the things you do and all the companies you run, I think it's all awesome. The one thing that does concern me, and I know concerns a lot of people out there, so I do have to bring it up, which is Neuralink. Sure. So, firstly, can you explain what Neuralink is and what the goal of it is? Uh, we put a, a chip in your brain to control your mind. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Concerns not alleviated. Yeah, there you go. Um, <laughs> jump right in. <laughs> Step right up. Who wants one? Um, no, so, so Neuralink, you'll be able to see Neuralink coming from a very long distance because any device that you implant in a human is you have to go through a million, so many tests. Um, it, it moves very slowly. You just do a few people at a time and then... Um, you, you go to extreme lengths to prove safety. Um, you have to go through the FDA approvals. Like we're not trying to sidestep any, you know, uh, regulatory approvals. We're um, doing everything, you know, by the book and uh, with maximum. We're really actually we're going uh, far beyond what the requirements are of the FDA from a safety standpoint. Mm-hmm. Um, and the the initial devices will really just be a pretty basic. Um, It'll be about restoring functionality to people who've lost their connection between their their brain and their body. So you can imagine, like, if say Stephen Hawking could talk or communicate um, as fast as uh, somebody with a fully functioning body, mm-hmm. that would be amazing. So that's like the what we're trying to do. That that's our first application is to restore functionality to quadriplegics, tetraplegics, and and people who've just for whatever reason uh, no longer have a connection between or if. A limited connection between their their their, their brain and their body, mm-hmm. um, and then the second application would be restoration of eyesight. So if somebody's uh, gone completely blind, maybe even has lost the optic nerve, um, you can actually still uh, directly uh, stimulate the neurons in the visual part of the the cortex. Um, so 
you can give, give a direct vision to the brain. Mm-hmm. And in fact, you could actually, depending upon what cameras you use, you could actually see in different wavelengths. Okay. You know, like oh, uh, wow. Jordi LaForge from like, you know, you could like have that like, <laughs> I actually watched like an episode of Star Trek Next Generation with special effects compared to what we're used to are like, <laughs> you know, uh, not that great, but he's got like the wraparound, you know, uh, glasses and he can see in different uh, wavelengths. Uh, so he can see like uh, ultraviolet, you know, infrared and that kind of thing. So you can actually do that. You could say like, you could see in radar if you want, mm. you know. And what's the, what's the long-term, what's the long-term goal for it? I, Cause I think myself and others, I think the, the, the first part is, the first part sounds, sounds fine. Sounds yeah, good. Yeah. That's like hard to argue with. You know? yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, but long-term, I think I mean, the concern that people have is, is this just leading us into this dystopian transhumanist future? Where, where does it go? What are the, what are the ethical boundaries of it? Well, I mean, the thing I wanted to emphasize is that it's not going to like sort of pounce on us overnight. Mm-hmm. Uh, it'll you'll you'll see it coming. It's going to be very slow. In fact, I, I really think that um, artificial general intelligence or digital superintelligence is likely to arrive before we have really advanced neural links. At least that's where the trend is right now. Mm-hmm. So, um, but 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 ultimately, the idea would be to achieve a symbiosis between our biological mind and our kind of digital mind. So we, we're already kind of a cyborg uh, if you think of like your phone and your computers as an extension of yourself. Mm-hmm. In fact, like if you leave your phone behind, it's like you have missing limb syndrome. You're like, you know, <laughs> where did it go, you know? Um, and uh, so the phone is a kind of an extension of ourselves, like computer is, uh, the various applications that we use are already an extension of self. So we, we are already a cyborg. It's just that the interface is uh, with our eyes and our fingers. Yeah. Um, and um, and that, that interface, especially output, the rate at which we can type words into a phone or a computer, just it's very slow. Our, the, our input is much better because with, with the, the data rate from vision is, um, you know, I don't know, many thousands of times, maybe a million times better than the rate at which we can... Um, Output. So input is like maybe, I don't know, roughly a million times better than output. And uh, so, so what, what a Neuralink device can do is improve that bandwidth, allow, you, allow um, you to be sort of much more symbiotic with your, the, the AI extension of yourself. Mm. So you can think of like, like a human brain really is, could, could be arguably divided into two parts. One is kind of like the primitive uh, brain, um, the, the reptile brain, it's sometimes called, you know, it's like a, a sort of basic instincts. And, um, and then we've got the cortex, like the higher level thinking, planning, and that kind of thing. Um, but the two operate symbiotically. So I haven't yet met anyone who wants to delete their limbic system or mm. delete their cortex. Everyone's quite happy having both. Yeah. They're like, oh, I like it the way it is, you know. Um, but your cortex is way smarter than your limbic system. So, but the irony is that even though the cortex is way smarter than the limbic system, most of what it's doing is trying to make the limbic system happy. It's like limbic system's hungry. Hungry. Okay, let's get some food. Mm-hmm. Um, the limbic system is horny. Okay, let's you know have sex or whatever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we'll see. I mean, the sheer amount of 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 effort the you know the the cortexes have of all the humans have put into trying to get laid is insane. 
That's got to keep the species going. Yeah, but, it was, but not even with even if you know it's not for procreation, like the, like the limbic system is is re- really like too simple to understand that like sex does not result result in in procreation because mm-hmm. for almost all of human existence that it did. Um, you know, birth control is a very recent thing, so this, the the limbic system is like trying to incent procreation and. Um, but but now we can effectively hack the limbic system by doing procreation, but by having sex without procreation. Mm-hmm. Um, so, which is, I guess, maybe part of the the issue with uh, you know why do we have more kids? Is like in the past it would just happen because yeah, you know course, yeah. in order to make the limbic system happy, you'd have sex. You you didn't have birth control, so if you out where you pop out some kids. Yes. Um, so that's that's how it used to be. Um, so, 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 the, so even though you've got a cortex that's way smarter than the limbic system, the cortex is still basically just trying to make the limbic system happy. And um, and then if you think of like a, the computers as a, as a sort of a third layer, um, the AI is a third layer. It's not necessarily the case that the um, AI would be acting contrary to our interests. I think if it's closely linked with our biological intelligence, I think it could. Um, actually be just simply, again, trying to make the cortex happy, which is trying to make the limbic system happy. So I think we'll put even more computing power to try to get laid, mm-hmm. basically. <laughs> um, now the AI is going to help you get laid. <laughs> I, I think I think what it is that, that concerns people about it, number one, I'm, you know, number one being new, but I think the main thing is, is the, the fact that this is something that's like inside, inside your body. Right, I think the the idea of putting a chip in the idea of someone putting a chip in my brain, I, I just have a vi- I have a visceral no, right? Like I, I'm a, I have a I have a very I mean a very it's, visceral it's, it's reaction an optional to, thing. I mean, it's, it's yeah. We're not gonna you know. W- would it would it be though long term? I mean, I hope so. Us? I think it should yeah. be optional. Yeah, It'd be bizarre if it was not. Um, no, I think it's kind of like how some... kind, what I, so the reason I ask is because smartphones right now are sort of optional but if you don't have a smartphone the way everything is sort of designed around society um you yes you cannot have a smartphone but it's a massive hindrance and disadvantage in many ways true a smartphone is almost essential in a modern society to to do things yeah um so could a neuralink end up in that same sort of place it's possible but i'm just saying if it does it's a it's it's many decades from now, so it's not like you know it's not today's problem. Yeah, I'd worry a bit more about digital superintelligence. I'd worry about let's try to avoid World War Three. Yeah, uh, let's let's make sure we're at least having enough kids to sustain our population. You know, basic stuff like that. Yeah, what's your greatest concern with artificial intelligence? Because I know that you have worked with it, but also. I know it's something that you personally have massive concerns about as well, which you've voiced in this podcast and elsewhere. Yeah, I, I think that actually the most likely outcome for artificial intelligence is is that it is good, that it will um, improve our lives, most likely. But there's some chance that it will not, and I think we just need to be cognizant of that and, and understand it. It's a powerful technology. It's a double-edged sword, um, and we need to put a lot of effort into ensuring that uh, we have a good AI outcome and not a bad one. Mm. 
What, so, what does a good one look like? Well, if, I'd recommend people read the Ian Banks books, okay. uh, the culture books. Um, that's the best uh, representation of a positive AI human future that I've seen. Okay. Um, so that, that's my recommendation. I mean, it, effectively, AI, I think it'll, it'll, it will massively enhance human ability. It's like a, just a massive amplifier of human ability. Um, just like the computer was. Um, so really it's just a question of like, does, does it, there's some risk that it doesn't merely amplify human activity, but it starts basically just being in charge. Yeah. Um, and you know, there's some risk it may you know, view humanity negatively and mm. decide that we're <laughs> a blight on the earth. Like, like I think like, like a very dangerous thing would be if, if the, if they sort of, human extinctionist philosophy somehow got into AI, that would be bad. Like mm. that guy that was yes. on the front page of the New York Times saying, you know, the 8 billion people on Earth. We don't we, want him coding it. We don't want him coding no. it. Yeah. Safe yeah. to say. What and, about, there's, and there's quite a few people in this neck of the woods who have that yeah. ex, either explicit or implicit extinctionist view. Yes. Where they view humanity as a blight on the face of the yeah, earth. Yeah, there's a lot of antinatalists in the in the world yeah. and people who and anti 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 human. Yes, yeah. yes, like you said, people who don't have the pride in being human, right? There's people who yeah, they feel like say, guilty or something. There's people who even say that that's a speciesism. You know, that's a <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I'm a human supremacist. I'll I'll be open about that one. Yeah, I mean, um, I think. Uh, we got to fight for team human. Like yeah. if we don't fight for it as humans, who, who will? Yeah. I mean, if the earth exists and humans do not, then it's like we're saving the planet for who at that point. Yeah. What do you think about AI replacing jobs though? Cause that's a, that's a big concern. Even if AI doesn't sort of go rogue and start doing yeah. something directly horrible. I think a lot of people's concerns is just, Hey, uh, what about everyone's jobs? Uh, AI will certainly be very disruptive because yeah. jobs will be different. Um, so no, I think the the rate of the rate the change caused by AI is going to be pretty radical. So there there will you know a lot of jobs that are that currently exist won't exist in the future. But I think there will be new jobs, um, and I, I do think like in a, in a benign AI scenario, we we will really have an age of abundance. Um, the I think really goods and services, unless they're artificially made scarce. Like like it's specialized artwork, or you want that particular house in that neighborhood. Um, like it has to be an artificial scarcity, but anything that is not made artificially scarce will be plentiful. As in a benign AI scenario, you'll be able to have any products and services you want. Mm -hmm. That anyone will. Does that not start to cause a whole new level of problems? Yeah, it does. Yeah. I, it's like it's, it's like you, you know. There's there's some things which sound like a like a a blessing, but may in fact be a curse. Yeah. Like I think you will live forever. It sounds like a blessing. It's actually a curse. You would not want to live forever. You don't know how long forever is. Um, and, uh, and if you say an another potential curse is you can have anything you want mm. effortlessly. Mm -hmm. Are you sure you want that? Yeah. <laughs> Does anything matter at that point? Yeah. Um, and, and what about the value? I mean, I think a lot of the value of work isn't just, getting money to buy things it's right. the meaning it's the purpose it's knowing that you worked for this thing right it, it's yeah, different yeah. it's different to get 10 million dollars because someone just gave you 10 million dollars sure. or you won a lottery 
versus you created a business and sold products and services that helped you to earn that money. Exactly. So it's like, how do we find meaning um, and relevance? Yeah. Um, if you have an age of abundance where the computer you just ask for anything and get it, um, it, it is something we'll have to struggle with. That that'll that'll be. It. I don't know. It's. I think that's kind of most likely where we're headed is an age of abundance. Mm. Um, but it will definitely cause some existential angst. Um, what are you most optimistic about? In fact, if I should, if I should say like, like okay. for, for a Neuralink device, I mean, part of what I'm hoping is here in a benign AI scenario, like how do we even go along for the ride? Mm. How do we even understand the AI? Okay. Like if you've got some sort of, you know, incredible intelligence, unless we do sort of effectively have better symbiosis, increase the bandwidth to our, the AI extension of ourselves, effectively augment our human intelligence substantially, um, we may not even be able to appreciate the wonders that will exist in the future. Like how do you even go along for the ride and appreciate the I don't know, potentially amazing things in the future? Yeah. Hmm. What gives you, what, what keeps you optimistic day to day? You're, you're a busy man. You're running all these companies. You've got a busy family life going on. You've got praise, criticism, love, hate flowing in all different directions. But number one, two, two questions, actually. Number one, how do you stay, how do you stay sane and grounded with it all? Because something is always. What makes you think I'm saying? (laughs) (laughs) I think you're certainly grounded, and (laughs) I I think you're grounded. Honestly, I mean the fact that we're sitting here and that you know you interact with so many people. I mean, let's be honest: if 99% of people were in your position, they wouldn't be doing what you're doing on on any level. Um, You're you're there on Twitter. You're cracking jokes. You're posting memes (laughs) and responding. I mean, if it's you're you're who you are, but you're also you strike me as a, a normal guy who is doing extraordinary things rather than someone who's just completely like, I don't know, out there and I couldn't even have a conversation with, you know? So that's what I mean by saying. <laughs> um, well, I, I do think it's important to, um, you know, not, not get, uh, you know, quote Scarface, don't get high on your own supply. Of course, in the end he did. <laughs> Um, but, uh, you don't want to start thinking too highly of yourself. Um, cause it, it actually reduces your feedback loop. You, <clears throat> you know, if you, if you think you're too smart, you, you, you stop, um, listening to criticism. So I think, you know, Twitter is actually helpful for that. You know, mm. you certainly people will not try about <laughs> voicing their opinions. Um, so uh, the frogs with 20 followers keep you in check. Yeah. I mean, I've got, yeah, I've got, uh, you know, like there's just some things I'm, I'm trying to get accomplished and, you know, advanced rocketry and sustainable energy and in the case of Twitter freedom of speech. So I think these are, these things are, these things mean a lot to me. So I, um, I guess I'm motivated to get these things done in order to get these things done. I have to stay sane because, um, you know, uh, like physics is a law and everything else is a recommendation. And if you, if you go crazy and you don't if you do things that, you know, agree with physics, the rockets blow up, the cars don't work. Mm. 
So physics is a you know harsh judge. It's you you get you get the engineering and the math right, or you don't, and it doesn't work if it, if you don't. So you you have to stay grounded in order for the technologies to actually work. I hear that, Elon. Very very grateful for you taking the time out for this conversation. I want to say, I mean, I said this on Twitter, but I want to say it to your face. I massively admire and appreciate what you're doing. Um, a massive thank you to, from everyone who uh, has been dealing with the nonsense on Twitter, who's <laughs> sure. managed to get their accounts back and be able to speak freely and all that. Um, I want to say that, but honestly, I think what you're doing is is awesome. You're a huge inspiration. I know that in this age of criticism. People don't like to tell people, hey, you're doing a good job. I want to encourage you. I thank want to you. uplift you. So I want to do that. And uh, God bless you. Well, thank you. I appreciate you, man. Too. Thank you. All right. It was a pleasure. I am the man, sick with the slang, sick and I'm destined for fame. fame.